Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Maybe it's because I grew up in a politically diverse household, but I've always enjoyed a spicy conversation around politics and culture. And I'm also very open to having my beliefs challenged. I love reading columnists who disagree with me. That's especially true when I feel like the person disagreeing with me is honest and fair. In other words, they're not misrepresenting me or engaging in some sort of name-calling or ad hominem attack. That's one reason I've always respected Nicholas Kristof and enjoyed reading his columns in the New York Times. There's a lot Kristof and I don't agree on, but I find him to be intellectually honest. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground. He shares how he was held at gunpoint while reporting an international story. We discuss what he respects about evangelical Christians, even though he's not one himself. He shares about his relationship with Tim Keller and why he's concerned about the great de-churching that's happening in America. I ask him if the New York Times has become an echo chamber. And then we get into his book, Tightrope, in which he shares about his hometown of Yamhill, Oregon, and how it's changed in the past few decades. Why have people in rural America fallen on hard times, and what can be done to address the problems they face? Are the problems more structural or personal? And how much can the government really help? Let's talk to Nicholas Kristof. Nicholas Kristof, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Great to be with you. Well, I really appreciate having you on. You and I were scheduled to talk earlier, but we needed to reschedule that because you ended up spending some time in Israel covering the Israel-Hamas war. And I just know from reading you over the years that you've spent a lot of time traveling in difficult places. Have you ever been in a spot where you feared for your safety? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been held at gunpoint in more countries than I could possibly name. Really? Gunpoint, like you thought maybe they'd shoot you or were they scaring you or you don't know? Well, in one case, the soldier told me, I am going to shoot you. (laughs) He added, I'm going to shoot you 10 times. And I kept thinking, does it really matter whether it's eight times or 12 times? And I didn't seek to point that out to him. Where was that? That was in Ghana when I was actually a student. It was when I was writing for the Wall Street Journal and trying to build up a reputation. Uh-huh. And my career almost ended you know, before it began. How did you get out of that sweet talk or bribe him? Or did the authorities come at the right moment? So I had a couple of hairy experiences on that trip. There had just been a military coup. There were just a bunch of drunken soldiers. And in that case, I had a camera around my neck. And I think he wanted the camera and I was on a public bus and everybody else went through these soldiers and then was ushered back on the bus and he detained me and kept saying he was going to shoot me and I think he wanted either the camera or a bribe and I was just too dumb to realize that 
And so eventually he just gave up and let me go on back on the bus. And everybody on the bus was congratulating for me for my courage and refusing to pay a bribe. And I was just thinking, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> and I was just a complete idiot. You would have been happy to part with that camera to save your life. Yeah. And then a couple of days later, I was stopped by a couple of drunken soldiers on the road. And that was almost scarier. I mean, they robbed me. They were just so drunk. And you had the sense that you might live and you might die and you had no control of the situation. And it was very useful for me as a very young man to experience that close call you know, because it reminded me in the, all the decades since that everything is going fine until the moment it is and you've lost control and there's no way to rectify it. Well, I know you've got a new memoir coming out, Chasing Hope. Does these stories of near-death experiences make it into the memoir or no? They do. They do. Along with a plane crash in Congo and kind of lessons for how to, you know, how to talk to your spouse about these things because, you know, it's, it's complicated. On the one hand... It's unfair to put your family through this. On the other hand, you know, there is a sense of mission that drives one to go and cover these stories. And I care deeply about the stories. I also care deeply about my family. And how do you reconcile those things? Well, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the family in a little bit and how you possibly co-wrote a book with your wife and how your marriage sustained that. But two books, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But before we get to that, I just want to say that after reading you for years, one of the things I really appreciate about you, and it's only more important in the last few years, but I appreciate the way that you have strong opinions and yet still see the humanity in people that you disagree with or disagree with you. You know, your resistance to attack or demonize people with different views. Where does that come from in your life? I think one element of that is that I grew up in and am now living in rural Oregon. And so I tend to ward fairly liberal views, but most of my friends around here, people I care deeply about, are very conservative. And so their challenges, many of my friends who I deeply care about are strong Trump supporters, and I think Trump was a disaster. But I respect my friends, they respect me, and I think that one of the mistakes that my own tribe of liberals has made is being too condescending toward working-class Americans, toward people we disagree with in ways that are unfair and counterproductive. Well, you know, I just respect it so much because it seems like people aren't just wrong, but they're wicked, right? That we don't kind of appreciate people's humanity, seeing them as having their own set of experiences. And just because they disagree with us doesn't mean that they're bad people. And so I really respect that about your writing. I'm wondering, because you've talked a lot about religion in your columns, or at least you have, and those are some things that stand out to me that I want to get to. But have you received any religious training? Did you grow up in a religious household or not really? I grew up in a doubly religious household because my dad was a Catholic and my mom a Presbyterian. And they both are, uh, you know, people who not only are faithful, but really think deeply about religion. And so all during my childhood, frankly, I was dragged to Catholic mass and then at 11 a.m. to the Protestant church, Presbyterian or Congregational church, depending on the time period. And so I got a double dose and... One reason I write about this so much is that on opinion pages, we tend to write a lot about politics. We write about things like that. But if you think about forces that shape Americans or shape the world, you know, it's hard to think of anything that shapes people more than faith. And yet we rarely talk about 
faith on opinion pages. I think that's a mistake. Well, in 2011, you wrote this, but in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related. Most important, they go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. What do you respect about evangelical Christians? And then maybe at the same time, what concerns do you have? You know, I have these really complicated feelings. I spent a lot of time covering AIDS, and I truly think that few things have appalled me so much as seeing some evangelical leaders like Pat Robertson oppose funding for AIDS because they thought it was principally going to kill gay people. And that the greatest wickedness, I think, in that period wasn't gay bathhouses or anything like that. It was the way supposedly moral people resisted funding for AIDS and let millions of people die around the world as a result. And likewise, I think evangelicals have in many ways been on the wrong side of civil rights, of gay rights, and so on. And yet, you know, people are complicated. And if you look at generosity, so liberals tend to be pretty good at generosity with public money. And if you think about efforts to fight child poverty, then liberals are more likely to support government programs to address child poverty. Conservatives are much more likely to address child poverty with their own wallets. And one of the best predictors of how generous people will be toward charity is religious faith. And as I wrote in that piece that when I'm out in the field in Congo or Darfur in Sudan, just the raw courage you see from some folks, not just evangelicals, I mean, Catholic nuns, oh, I'm just in awe of nuns. The way they sacrifice comfort, income, risk their lives on behalf of others in a way that feels like truly emulating Jesus's path. I mean, I just so admire that. And I'm really resentful when my world of liberals makes these sweeping, stereotypical denunciations of evangelicals. And again, the world is complicated there. There are all kinds of evangelicals and they're the blowhards. And then there are the people who truly, you know, live the scripture. Yeah. I think you're in a great position because you're friendly to faith. And in some sense, you grew up in the church, two churches, like you said, your parents who you have a great relationship with, and therefore you're sympathetic to Christianity to some extent. And yet you said, and even in this piece, that you're not really religious yourself. So you might be the perfect person to kind of say, hey, to the evangelical church, here's some advice. Do you have advice that you'd give to evangelicals, church-going people, people who are sincere about their faith, maybe how they come across in the media or how they come across in the workplace or politics or whatever? What kind of advice would you give? I guess there are two. One is that in general, I think religious conservatives have withstood pressures better than cultural conservatives. And I think a lot of what in America we think of as the evangelical community, a lot of that is people who are culturally evangelical, but 
don't really read the Bible. They're more politically <laughs> evangelical than religiously evangelical. I think that the political connections of evangelicalism have been a catastrophe. I think the association with Donald Trump, the engagement in culture wars, I think that has undermined all the good that people do. And I think, you know, you look at polling among young people and young Christians. I mean, many don't even want to be called Christians. They want to be called Jesus follower, things like this. So one would be just try to extricate religion from politics, become active in politics, sure, but not as a element of the church. And I think the other that I've learned is the importance of accountability and that whenever any institution or whenever any person lacks oversight and accountability, then bad things tend to happen. And you see that with, you know, famous rock musicians who feel they can get away with anything or famous sports stars. Or you saw that with Catholic priests, and you saw that with, you know, most recently Southern Baptists. So I think the importance of having structures and accountability so that people, when they screw up, they pay a price. There is no impunity. I think that is critically important for faith structures as well. Right. I mean, accountability in leadership is important wherever you are, and you're saying including the church. In August of 2023, you wrote about the book, The Great Dechurching, and it tells the story of about 40 million Americans leaving the church since 1990. I'm wondering if you think it'll be good or bad for the country as Christianity's cultural influence decreases. You know, I think about that tweet that Ross Douthat, your colleagues at the Times, said, if you dislike the Christian right, wait till you see the post-Christian right. I'm wondering how you, as a friendly outsider, see that. Do you kind of celebrate that Christianity's cultural influence is declining, or do you go, "Uh uh-oh, we're in for a harder road as it declines? I would generally say, "Uh uh-oh, in a couple of ways. I think that it is really important to have structures that knit people together and that provide a sense of community. And churches were traditionally a very important part of that social fabric. I think we face an enormous problem around America and around, frankly, the entire West with social isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And there's no easy answer, but some kind of community institution that can bring people together a sense of purpose, I think, is important, and churches did that. The other is that in especially small-town America, social services so often are provided by local churches, and whether it's, you know, breakfast for people who are homeless or food banks or whatever it may be, so much of the suffering around the country would be amplified if there weren't these kind of programs. Charles Colson was somebody who I disagreed with probably on every possible issue. And of course, he'd been engaged in Watergate, but I so admired his work in prisons and improving prison life. And Christians have been so important to efforts to reduce prison rape, for example, and to improve prison conditions. So I'm in the uh uh-oh category. It's interesting because it seems like you have this relationship with people of faith, like a Colson. And for those of you who don't remember, Charles Colson was part of the Nixon administration. I think he was the hatchet man. He becomes a believer, a Christian in prison. And then he comes out and starts Prison Fellowship, which does fantastic work and still does after Charles Colson's death. 
But it seems like you have this kind of relationship where a lot of Christians, not all, I mean, some are just like you called them, I think, earlier blowhards, but some of these people, you respect them on one level by how they live, and yet you find yourself fundamentally disagreeing with them at a different level. And I guess it just kind of reminds us all that people are complicated, like you said earlier. Yeah, I mean, I disagree theologically, certainly with evangelicals on all kinds of principles. I mean, traditionally, the basic notions of the defined in evangelical was a belief that people can be saved only through a direct relationship with Jesus. And the implication is that Gandhi is writhing in hell. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, feels a breach of every kind of spiritual notion I have. And so, you know, I disagree profoundly theologically with evangelicals. Right now, white evangelicals tend to be very conservative. I'm not. But that shouldn't impede me from recognizing the incredible good that evangelicals have done at home and around the world. Well, it reminds me of the conversation you had with Tim Keller, who recently passed away. But back in 2016, before Christmas, you asked him, if he thought you were a Christian. Now, if I remember it right, you said you didn't believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection, but you kind of still wanted, I got the impression, to call yourself a Christian or maybe to think of yourself as a Christian. And you're asking him if that was okay, is that legitimate, even though you reject some core Christian teaching? How did you get to know Keller? I mean, did you know him well, or where did you get connected with him along the way? So he had invited me to speak to his church. I think actually the topic was how to build bridges in different groups. And we had a conversation and I thought the idea of an evangelical building a huge church presence in Manhattan was so surprising. It was a tribute to his charisma, but also to his ideas, the power of his ideas. And so I really respected him. I like to think he felt a similar respect for me. And we were each pretty blunt. And, you know, in that case, in that conversation, he said, I don't exactly want to say, okay, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. But, you know, in general, the kind of positions you describe make me think that's probably outside the margin, outside the box. One of the great things about Tim Keller, who I really admired, is that he was able to tell you, no, you're not a Christian, but do it in a way that kind of made you okay with that. I mean, right? It wasn't offensive. It wasn't angry. It never belittled you or mocked your beliefs. And yet he held firm to what he believed. And I think that kind of bridge building that he was going to have you into his church and that kind of winsomeness is missing in a lot of places, sure in the church, but in a lot of places inside our culture. And so I respect that you're trying to do the same thing he was doing, and that is build bridges while holding to your core beliefs. You know, one thing that I think that Tim realized, and it certainly affects the way I make my arguments as an opinion columnist, is that there's a tendency right now to preach to one's base and to shake one's fist and denounce the other side and get the base really roused. But if you want to convince people, if you want to win people over to your side, if you're Tim and you want to actually get people in Manhattan to go to your church, or if you're liberal me and you want to convince conservatives of your ideas, then shaking your fist and saying how awful the other side is, that's not very effective. And showing respect and listening and being civil is actually more likely to win people over and change people's minds. Well, one of my theories is that when we lost truth, we lost the art of persuasion. 
And instead of persuading people, now we try to amass power. And so that's why we shake our fists. That's why we try to get the base riled up. Because now, instead of trying to persuade you to take a step my direction, I just want to make sure I have enough seats on the Supreme Court or enough seats on the school board or enough seats in the House of Representatives or the Senate. And that is more based on gaining power to enforce my will or our will, however you think about it, instead of trying to persuade people. And I think the loss of capital T truth has been damaging. After Trump won the election in 2016, you wrote a column on the danger of echo chambers. And you wrote this. I think when you say we here, I think you're talking about people kind of in the liberal community, but you can correct me if I got that wrong. But we champion tolerance, except for conservatives and evangelical Christians. We want to be inclusive of people who don't look like us so long as they think like us. How do you stay out of the echo chamber? Well, it helps that I'm talking to you right now from Yamhill, Oregon, <laughs> a farming community that voted 70-30 for Trump that, you know, where there are four churches in a town of less than a thousand <laughs> and where I have a lot of friends I care deeply about who think nothing like me. What about ideologically outside of your local community, which I think is really awesome, but ideologically, how do you do it? So one thing that you learn as a reporter is the importance of talking to people and listening to views that are very different from your own. So, you know, when I'm out in Afghanistan or Pakistan, then I try to talk to the Taliban, for example, and understand what they think. When I'm in the West Bank or Gaza, I try to talk to people who, you know, are pro-Hamas or think very, very differently. And that's why I go to North Korea and talk to North Koreans. And in the U.S., to get out of my echo chamber, you know, every day I go for a run, you know, with the theory that it's painful, I, mean, I sweat, but it builds a better me. And every day, likewise, I read the Wall Street Journal opinion pages, and likewise, it makes me sweat. It's painful, but I do think it builds a better me. Hmm. Do you think the New York Times in itself is in danger of becoming an echo chamber. And I say that thinking about Barry Weiss's very public departure and starting the free press and kind of a scathing departure letter that she wrote. And I'm sure that you at least knew her and maybe friends with her. I don't know. But of course, you work together. And the fact that people have made a big deal that on the opinion page for The Times, there's no one who's publicly said that they voted for Donald Trump. And so roughly 50 percent of the country voted for him on a couple different occasions and maybe will, too, in 2020. 24. We don't know how that'll play out yet. But do you think the Times is in danger of becoming its own little echo chamber? Not really, with a couple of caveats. And I've been part of the Times forever, so I'm probably not the best judge of the Times itself. But if you think institutionally of big East Coast media, the New York Times, Washington Post, the networks, et cetera, with the exception of Fox, then there tend to be conservative political views. And so one does have voices in the Times that are economically conservative, for example, or politically conservative. There are fewer socially conservative views, you know, evangelical views. So there are fewer voices that are pro-gun or anti-abortion or same-sex marriage, for example. And as you likewise point out, you know, very few voices that are pro-Trump. We have a number of people that could be considered conservative, but they tend to be anti-Trumpers. And I think that it is useful to have more social conservatives. I mean, I confess, I think it's a little difficult to find pro-Trump voices that are free thinking, but 
you know, that may reflect my own my own ideological biases. <laughs> sure. I mean, the Wash Post had Michael Gerson, who is a brilliant mm-hmm. evangelical voice, for example, and a ferocious anti-Trump voice. We have David French, who is sort of a similar category. So one of the challenges is that we want to have a range of opinions from across the spectrum, and yet we don't want to have people who are kind of knee-jerk, you know what they're going to say. And that has meant that there are not a lot of pro-Trump voices in the major media. I don't know a lot about the inner workings of the New York Times. I only know what I read. And, you know, I'm even then captive to that because I obviously haven't read everything. But it seemed to me to be a bad sign when Barry Weiss left because I can't imagine anyone would call her a conservative. I can't imagine that anyone would call her a Trump supporter. She's a lesbian woman, Jewish, I think very center. And when she left, assuming she was telling the truth, it seemed like that was a sign to me that, uh uh-oh, this New York Times that I've been a subscriber to for a long time myself, it started to say to me, maybe there's a danger of it's becoming an echo chamber. But I mean, I wish that she hadn't left. And in my memoir that you mentioned, I talk about, you know, some of the other episodes that have provoked a lot of pain at the times, including the ouster of our opinion editor, James Bennett. Which was all related to the same reason Barry Weiss left, the Tom Cotton editorial, right? Correct. I'm sure it it was bigger than that. It was bigger than that. And there were real battles within the Times over this. But anyway, it's something that I do explore in the memoir. Well, I can't wait to read it then. So you've been extremely successful, both educationally and professionally. You studied at Harvard. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You've won Pulitzer Prizes. You've published books. You've had a column in the elite paper for a long, long time. I'm curious, when you think about your personal success, your professional success, how much of that do you attribute to hard work and good choices? And how much of that do you attribute to luck? All of the above. I mean, I certainly think I worked hard, but I also hugely benefited from good luck. But the most important bit of good luck was the fact that I was conceived by two parents who deeply believed in education, who read to me, loved me, supported me. And when I think about friends who have struggled, then it just sort of underscores to me that the most important decision we face is who we're born to. And I was very, very lucky that I had the best parents who were incredibly supportive. Yeah, I think most of us don't think in terms of how much where we were born, when we were born, to whom we were born, with what health we were born to. Like luck, E.B. White said, is something you can't bring up in the presence of self-made men, right? They're offended by it. But when you just think of things that we didn't control in our life, there's some really big things that set us up to be successful. Of course, everybody works hard. A lot of people work hard and most people work hard, but most people don't have the same opportunities as others. And I'm bringing that because I think it goes to the heart of what you're talking about in your book, Tightrope. You're talking about growing up in Yamhill, Oregon, where you currently live. Can you just describe a little bit of Yamhill? What was it like when you grew up and what is it like now? How has it changed Yamhill is right where the Willamette Valley meets the Oregon Coastal Range, and it traditionally was a area dependent on basically three things, logging, agriculture, and light manufacturing. So the biggest local employer was a club factory, for example. There was a steel mill a little further off. There was a cannery. So it was kind of jobs like those. And it was an area that had done quite well economically for much of the 20th century. People 
were living much, much better lives. And we were also kind of full of ourselves. We talked a lot about the pioneer spirit. And in rural America, we sort of pride ourselves on the way we support each other and this tradition of barn raisings and our strong cultural capital. And then we faced a series of crises and we realized, well, maybe we have less cultural capital than we thought. Did the crises cause the erosion of the cultural capital? Did it expose it? Or was there something else that caused the cultural capital to erode? Is it a church thing, a moral thing, or is it just that jobs left and went overseas? I wondered about this because, I mean, the sort of bottom line is when I wrote Tightrope, that at that point, about a quarter of the people on my old school bus had died of drugs, alcohol, and suicide. Now it's more than a third. I just lost another friend, I'm a very good friend. And I have tended to think that this was because of the loss of good jobs and that people then self-medicated. But the challenge for that point of view is that in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, you know, people lost jobs, but they didn't self-medicate back then. They didn't commit suicide then. The response wasn't like that. And I think that the difference was twofold. I think that during the Great Depression, there were these community institutions, including churches, but also a number of others, that provided networks of support and that buffered those outside pressures. And those institutions had withered to a considerable degree over the decades since the Great Depression. And then second, the way people might have self-medicated in the Great Depression was largely alcohol. And alcohol can obviously be enormously debilitating, but the way people self-medicated beginning in the 1990s here was meth and other drugs. And meth and other narcotics are just toxic and they destroy social fabric in a way that alcohol did not so clearly do. And I think that, you know, it was that combination of lost jobs, collapse of social institutions and social fabric, and the rise of toxic drugs that help explain what happened. One of the things that seems to have happened in Yamhill, I think if I recall correctly from the book, is that families disintegrated. You know, it's not the only thing you address by any stretch, but in chapter 13, it's called Escape Artists. And you talk about the people who made it out, who did well, have thrived. And a lot of it, when I read that chapter, I thought, well, it seems like it dealt with the intact family. Like these people who made it out, by and large, of course, there are exceptions, but family and faith played a major role. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read Melissa Carney's book, The Two-Parent Privilege. We had her on not too long ago, and I just think it was amazing. But she talks about how inequality is fostered, exacerbated by the lack of two-parent families. I think that's completely true. You do? Okay. Oh, completely. But the rupture of the two-parent family in my area was not a precursor to this broader social collapse, but a consequence of it. So, Basically, what happened was that people, they lost good jobs, they self-medicated, they got arrest records, they became less marriageable, they became less employable, and then they you know, began to have kids here and there. In many ways, it was a parallel to what had happened in African-American communities in the 1960s when good jobs left those cities like Baltimore. And... In places like Yam Hill, Lily White Yam Hill, there was a tendency back then to look at black communities and say, ah, you know, lack of personal responsibility, lack of commitment to family. 
and we were kind of smug about it. And meanwhile, the great Harvard sociologist, William Julius Wilson said, no, it's about lost jobs. And he was right, because when jobs were lost in Yam Hill, in our white community, then the same pathologies unfolded and families just unraveled. And now you have kids, in some cases, growing up feral. And I completely agree with you and Melissa that this is a, a really hard thing and creates trauma for young kids that is a way that poverty self-replicates from generation to generation. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I need to look more into, just for my own personal benefit, the relationship between the economics and the jobs and the families, and if they one leads to the other, if they happen simultaneously, to be frank, I'm just not quite sure about that yet. But it seems from Melissa Carney's research, and she got a lot of pushback on this, but that what we need to do is incentivize marriage and incentivize child raising inside of that marriage between the husband and the wife. And she's gotten pushback from people who said that what we need to do is we need to provide government benefits to the people who are struggling. And she said, no, those aren't the same things. I mean, fine, let's provide government benefits. She's not against that at all, but that's not going to change it. So what do you think about that? So I think we actually have quite a bit of data about this. And I think Melissa is sort of careful in how she describes efforts to promote marriage. And for example, in the George W. Bush administration, there were a bunch of marriage promotion efforts that, to Bush's credit, were rolled out as randomized control trials. And we had a chance to kind of see how they worked. And they failed pretty dismally. And meanwhile, there are some other things that have worked. So for example, career academies, which are programs to give disadvantaged young people skills like to be a carpenter, to be a plumber, vocational skill that lets them earn more money. So those do improve marriage rates and increase the likelihood that a child is going to be raised in a two-parent household. But those sort of economic strategies to improve marriage rates do seem to be more effective. And likewise, one of the approaches that seems to be effective 
that some conservatives have indeed noted is helping teenagers avoid getting pregnant as teenagers because then if you can prevent that 16-year-old from having a baby as a teenager, then she's more likely in her 20s to get married and raise kids in the context of a family. And those two things, my reading of evidence, are the economic support and avoiding teen births, I think are the two most effective ways of reinvigorating the family. There's also, I think, kind of a norm. And I think this is maybe what you're alluding to, Keith, that I think you're right that liberals have been really reluctant to talk about family structure and that, oh, you know, we don't want to be judgmental. And, you know, that's a fine line to walk. On the one hand, we don't want to judge somebody who was left an abusive relationship, whatever it may be. On the other hand, I think it is important to acknowledge the evidence which suggests that on balance, kids' outcomes are better when they are on average in a two-parent household. And it turns out to be true of the community that one of the best predictors of how boys will do in the longer term is whether there are more dads as role models in that census tract. And it's an issue I've written about regularly, and I always get a lot of outrage from my fellow liberals. But I think the evidence is pretty strong about that. Well, they often call it talking left but living right, I think. Yeah, that's right. Is that right? Talking left, walking? Talking left, walking right. Yeah, as you say. So liberals tend to, you know, talk a good game about not being judgmental, everything is fine. But the way they actually conduct their lives is they get married first, have kids later. And in contrast, actually, many social conservatives and evangelicals, frankly, do the opposite. They talk right and they talk about the importance of marriage, whatever. But in fact, their lives unfold in much less coherent ways. And they don't believe in premarital sex and having babies. But in fact, that's what happens. And, you know, they do it. Exactly. Well, yeah, I think the frustration comes in that the people who are more liberal control, I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're influential in media and they're influential in pop culture and all these important places that set the cultural agenda. And they talk left about everybody do their own thing, do what you want, be true to yourself, don't feel constrained by these old moral rules that are of yesteryear. But they don't really live their life that way. Meanwhile, the people out in Yamhill, Oregon, are hearing all this and they begin to live that way. In other words, they live in line with how the pop culture talks, not how the pop culture actually lives their life. And they experience the disappointment, the heartache, the train wreck that comes from that. Yeah, I mean, except that I would push back. And when I think about my friends who wrestled with these issues, I don't think that the reason that they ended up abusing drugs or having kids by various moms outside of marriage. I don't think that's because they were reading the New York Times or listening to national TV. I really do think it's more economically driven than anything else. And that the men in particular lost jobs, lost good jobs. And it was, I think, psychologically devastating. They were used to an era when the man was the breadwinner and could support a family. And then that pretty much went away. Meth arrived. They then got an arrest record that made them less employable. Then all of a sudden, you know, women didn't want to marry a guy who isn't earning much, has an arrest record, has a criminal record. Sometimes they've been violent. But certainly, you know, whatever the pathway there, it's just been completely devastating. 
I think, again, like I said earlier, I need to go back and learn some more here because I think this is where you and I see things maybe from a little different perspective is that you see the economics being a bigger driver and I see the loss of truth and loss of moral cohesion and a moral code being the driver. But either way, when I listen to you, I hear you say years ago, Yamhill used to be in a better condition. Rural America used to be in a better spot. And I could almost swear I hear you say, we need to make America great again. (laughs) Now, of course, (laughs) I'm just joking, right? I know you would never support that slogan, Trump's slogan. But when you hear that slogan, make America great again, and you listen to someone like you who is so polar opposite of the former president, you can kind of understand why that slogan resonated with oh, absolutely. people, right? And then when people said, I'm excited about making America great again, people on the left said, well, it's because you're racists. You just want to go back to when you were in power or you're misogynist. You just want to go back when men had all the power and women were kept you know, barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen or whatever, right? And it seems like they've missed what it is that resonated with ordinary Americans. Absolutely. And so you said earlier, Yamhill voted 70-30 Trump. Why is that? I think it's for the reasons you say, and I think that the biggest political shift in the last few decades has been the way the educational divide has changed and that the working class used to be democratic. And now the working class is disproportionately Republican. The white working class is disproportionately Republican. And certainly many African-American, Latino members of the working class have also defected to Republicans. And today, education is the great predictor of how you vote. And more educated people overwhelmingly voted for Biden. And less educated people, when they were white in any case, voted for Trump. And there has been, as you suggest, this tendency for educated liberals to wag their fingers at working class American and say, you don't understand your interest. You're a racist, you're a bigot. And I find this catastrophic in two ways. First of all, I think it's just unfair. You know, one of my good friends here voted for Trump. I asked her about voting and she said, oh, you know, she'd never voted in her life because she thought it only kind of encouraged politicians. And then for the first time in 2016, she heard Trump and she thought, you know, he's speaking to me. Hmm. And so she cast her first ballot in 2016 for Trump. But, you know, she's somebody who had lost four family members to suicide. She had once put a gun to her own head. She'd been homeless for seven years. She had lost so much. And then you get a guy who talks about that kind of American suffering, promises to bring the jobs back and points to scapegoats like immigrants. And she felt he was speaking to her. And meanwhile, Democrats are snubbing her and calling her a racist and a bigot. I mean, of course she's going to vote for Trump. I just find it you know, both unfair. And if you're trying to win votes from working class voters, then calling them bigots is not a very successful way of doing that. No, it's not very attractive. If you go back and listen to presidents Reagan through Obama, you hear them say this phrase, like, if you work hard and play by the rules, you'll do well. And Reagan really started saying it more than any president in the past had. But I think President Obama said it more than anyone. And When you come to Donald Trump then running in 2016, he's the first president who doesn't talk like that. Like Hillary Clinton is talking about, we need the meritocracy and all this. And President Trump says the system's rigged. 
And the same thing, it's the same thing Bernie Sanders has. Yeah, that's right. At least on that topic. They're different on so many other things. But on that topic, they've touched on something. Instead of saying, if you work hard and play by the rules, you too can get ahead. You too can have the American dream. They say, no, the system's rigged against you. And I'm wondering if that resonated with the people of Yamhill. You know, it would kind of go back to our question about how much of your success is due to hard work and good choices and luck. I think there's a lot of people out there who are successful, regardless of their political affiliation, who have looked down on people who don't have as much as they do and have said to them, look, you just didn't work hard. You just didn't do the smart things I did with my life, or you could have had what I had. And the people out there in Yamhill and other places are going, no, I didn't have those same opportunities that you did. I have worked very hard on my farm. I've worked very hard in a factory or teaching school. But no, it turns out that I didn't have the same choices and chances that you had. Do you think that message of the systems rigged resonated with the people you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, rigged is a complicated word, but I think that way too many people who have been successful look in the mirror and say, boy, you're a smart guy. (laughs) You worked hard. You earned everything that you got. You deserve it. And, you know, there is some truth to that. They did work hard. They earned good grades. They didn't goof off. They didn't abuse drugs and so on. But they also probably had the benefit of two parents who loved them, who themselves were not wrestling with addiction, who did not transmit all kinds of trauma to those kids. And meanwhile, you know, I grew up in a house full of books. A lot of my friends who are no longer with us, there wasn't a book in that house. Instead of being read to by their dads, they were being beaten by their dads. I'm not sure that rigged exactly captures all that, but we did not have equal opportunity. Well, but the rigged thing kind of gets to that somehow the powers that be, whether they are government or Wall Street or somewhere, there's these powers that have rigged the system against you. And I don't know that it means a bunch of people are sitting in a back room planning it, but that they in real life have just created a system that benefits some more than others. And this gets to maybe the last thing I just want to touch on, and that is what do we do? Like, What's a path forward? And it seems like a lot of people in Yam Hill, a lot of Trump supporters in rural America or wherever they live, big cities, that they don't trust the government. And that's part of what's rigged the system. You know, I think of Oliver Anthony's song, Rich Men North of Richmond, and how they've rigged the system. And when I read your book, I don't think it's the only thing you say, tightrope. I don't think it's the only thing you say at all. But you do have a lot of confidence in government being able to come in and solve problems. But if the people don't trust government, and if they think the government has rigged the system against them, why do we think the government is going to be able to come in and solve some of these problems that people are facing? So it's a fair question. I guess I would say that People in Yamhill and elsewhere are very suspicious of institutions of all kinds. Mm -hmm. They're suspicious of government. uh, They're suspicious of big business. And churches maybe to a somewhat lesser degree. But within that, there's real variance. They have a lot of respect for Social Security. You know, Social Security is hugely reduced poverty among the elderly. Medicare is widely admired for, again, reducing death rates among the elderly and helping old folks. <laughs> Everybody loves to hate the DMV, but, you know, death rates per 100 million miles driven are down 90% since the 1930s. And that's partly about getting driver's licenses. And I think that there are some things we can do. I think that 
to try to prevent this kind of rigging, as we call it. I think it has to be about kids. I think that when somebody is in their 20s and 30s, you know, we can try to help, but it's really hard if they've been using drugs for decades. I think the place to start is with kids as young as we can get. And I think that it is, you know, outrageous that we have an education system that basically sends rich kids to really good schools and lower income kids to third rate schools and then doesn't make sure that they graduate from high school. If you don't graduate from high school in the 2020s, you're cooked. Your children are cooked. And so I think that there still are some ways we can try to, you know, buttress the child system, buttress K through 12 education, buttress job training programs. I think stronger unions, unions are complicated. They have all kinds of their own problems, but at the end of the day, they did help create a stronger working class and middle class in America. So I think there are some things we can do, but the kind of suspicion you mentioned is real and that will be an impediment to addressing these problems. Yeah, I think it kind of gets to the core of the problem. Well, maybe the core of the solution is a better way of saying it. Like I said, you have more confidence in government than I do. And you do mention from the DMV to Social Security, there's been a lot of successes in government. But at this point, right now, whether it's deserved or not, government doesn't have much trust in it. And so I think you have a view that there are good people out there who, if they had just opportunities that the government can give them, things will go better. And I hope you're right. I'm not quite as confident I would say Obamacare is an example of that. This was something that was extremely controversial that barely survived and survived with, you know, (laughs) with chunks taken out of it. And yet right now pulls very well that I think people were very suspicious of it, but it kind of proved itself by dramatically reducing the number of people without insurance and also lowering healthcare costs. Well, I love your work, whether it's your columns or your books, Half the Sky, one book you wrote with your wife, the other tightrope. And remind us, what's the memoir going to be called? So the memoir is called Chasing Hope. And, you know, I try to write an upbeat memoir about covering war, genocide, and the humanitarian crisis around me here in the U.S. Chasing Hope comes out in May, and it's available now for pre-order from your bookstore. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you spending some time with us. It's been one of my favorite conversations I've had doing this podcast. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Keith. Be well. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 